I'm Travis Reeder, and this is Go Time. It's Go Time, a weekly podcast where we discuss interesting topics around the Go programming language, the community, and everything in between. If you currently write Go or aspire to, this is the show for you. Okay, so episode number three. Uh, today we have Brian on the call. We're going to tell everybody hello, Brian. Hello. And we also have Carlicia here as usual. Hello, everybody. And we have a special guest today, a longtime Go community member. And I mean, longtime Go community member. He's got a gray beard. And uh, he's also the CTO and co founder of Iron.io. We have Travis Reeder here. Tell everybody hello, Travis. Hello. So typically we start the show off uh, just talking about some, uh, any news and articles that we've come across. Uh, Brian, Carly, do you have anything? Oh, I got something big. Yeah. So, you know, we, we all follow compiler times on, on tip these days because no the way. Compiler, nobody does that. Yeah. <laughs> the compiler slowed down a little bit in go 1.6. And I saw a tweet from Dave Cheney, uh, recently that showed that, uh, one of the most recent commits cut compile times. Uh, I'm, I'm looking at his Juju graph. It looks to me like it cut at about 40%. So we're getting much, much closer back to uh, Go 1.4 compile times, which we knew would happen. And I'm very excited to see. So hopefully when uh, 1.7 ships, the the p- compile pain won't be as, as bad as it was before. That's, that's a really big event for all of us. So thank you for everybody on the compiler team. Rob Griesemer, you rock. Thanks for doing that for us. We appreciate it. Yeah, I think that that was kind of a public thing when they converted the compiler to Go because a lot of it was kind of done um, through code generation that we all knew that that would happen. But it's great to kind of see the performance come back. Is that part of 1.7? Is that locked into that release or is this just a commit that's kind of hanging? There's not a feature freeze for 1.7 yet. So I'm assuming that anything that's in tip now is, is a candidate for 1.7. And there's no reason it wouldn't be included unless it breaks everything. I'm, I'm super excited about that. It, compile times, what, doubled? It, it was something along those lines. At least doubled, yeah. They, they were harsh. I mean, I it's mean, still nothing compared to, to C or C++, but right. you know, we when, have when to have a reason to hate, right? When you have lightning fast compile times and they, and they go down to just fast compile times, everybody whines. <laughs> but, but the nice news about... isn't fast enough. The nice news about these last couple of releases is that we've had, uh, although compile times went up a bit, you know, the performance has improved quite a bit. So with the SSA changes, uh, I think Go is speeding up in general. And if we can get those compile times back down to where they were, we win on both sides, both sides of the compiler. Yeah, agreed. So I have another news item that I thought was interesting, but I am completely unqualified to talk about. Uh, there was a Cloudflare blog post about building the simplest Go static analysis tool possible. And it, it made me think that, you know, maybe SSA is, is something within my reach. And it was a very interesting read. So I, I hope to be able to, to dig into that when I have some spare time and, and play with that. But it's definitely a good read. That blog post will be in our show notes. Have any of you guys played with any static analysis tools? Uh, so I actually, I mean, I've played with some of the static analysis analysis tools. Ugh, static analysis tools. <laughs> Tongue twister. Um, so I've played with some of the the tooling um, that's already been created, but I haven't created any of my own. Um, I did see that Cloudflare uh, post though, and yeah, that does make things look approachable. I'm not sure that I have anything in particular I want to write yet, but it does sound fun. Neuralic has a static analysis tool, correct? But I don't think it has support for Go yet. Uh, to be know? honest, I haven't looked at Neuralic in, in a while. Um, I mean, I, in, in my Ruby days, uh, there was a lot of Neuralic, but I don't think I've used it with Go, so I'm not sure what support they have. Is it a general thing that people who are using Go are not using Neuralic, I wonder? I think they just recently added some Go support. I don't know how much, though. Yeah, it was certainly popular in the Ruby days, that's for sure. It was. Everybody had New Relic. Everybody. Exactly. So we were actually talking about that a little bit this morning um, because we know that Iron.io was a Ruby shop prior. 
how much ruby is still left uh so there are still some bits and pieces that are in ruby typically the things that uh don't need to perform really really well and we've just kind of haven't ported them yet um and to be honest I, i'm still a ruby fan if if i'm writing something that doesn't need to perform and won't be used by a lot of people I'll, you know i'll still reach for ruby sometimes so I tell people that too. Ruby, I think, still has a special place in my heart. You know? Yeah, it's, you know, I, I love, I love the way it reads and stuff like that. So, and I mean, for throwing together quick CRUD apps, I mean, you can't beat it. I mean, I can take Rails and I can throw together like an admin area in a weekend. You know, mm-hmm. so and so, especially for prototyping. And although I think these days, um, React and just the JSON API has has come pretty close to the productivity that I used to feel with Rails throwing together CRUD apps. Right. Yes, I think uh, when you're writing Ruby and Ruby on Rails, I do it still, and it it starts becoming problematic when it just grows and then you don't know what to do with it. So it's starting to take about uh, microservices and maybe uh, moving Parts of your app that need to be more performant into other technologies can be a worthwhile endeavor. You, you know, my thought on Ruby these days is pretty similar to my thought on Java. It, it's not that I don't like the languages. I don't like the way people write the language. Mm-hmm. You know, like, it's like R- Ruby and Rails have been great, but these huge monolithic coupled together things because people just throw it together because they can and then it becomes hard to support. Yeah. Yeah. And you this question that you asked, Eric, maybe uh, reminded me of the question we were that we were throwing around last week about whether we measure performance, whether we optimize for performance. And I think Travis should be the most expert here. I am wondering how Travis, how do you plan for for performance, like for performance loads that you will need in the future? How much? Pre-planning goes into uh, identifying this, this piece will need to be performance performant in the future. Because I think uh, a lot of times we go about saying, well, I don't need this uh, more efficient technology because my app is not never going to need that much performance. And on the other hand, sometimes you know beforehand, but sometimes you don't know and you need to figure it out. Yeah. So, yeah, how does that go? I mean, it's it's impossible to predict, right? I mean, we didn't know what what we would need up front, which is why you know we went from Ruby and had to switch to Go. But nowadays, when we we do have a better idea of what we need, and and we just always try to push the limit. There was a recent blog post on a, on our blog.iron.io about uh, getting a million messages per second on IronMQ. So you know we're pushing it. We 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 have no customers that are doing that kind of Speed, but we try to push and hit kind of milestones like that. So, you know, if a customer does need that, or we're always ahead of what our customers would need. Plus, it's just cool. And it's cool. Yeah. <laughs> it's cool when you get dose commas. <laughs> yeah. Nothing makes us happier than good benchmarks. Yeah, exactly. Yes. But, but that wasn't just go. I mean, we had to, we, a lot of that is due to the database we chose and like the, the underlying technologies. We're actually using RocksDB under the hood. Rocks is a really interesting project. Yeah, Rocks is awesome. Yeah. And um, uh, CockroachDB is written on top of RocksDB too. It basically um, is implementing some of Google Spanner's paper uh, mixed with some other stuff, but that's all in Go. And then their file system layer is done with RocksDB. Yeah. Yeah, we're pretty, I I like that Cockroach project. I I don't know where it's at now. It was pretty early. You know, the yeah. last time I checked, but uh, we basically did the same thing for IronMQ. We took rocks as the persistence layer, which is super fast. It's nice for a queue too, because all the data is sorted. So it kind of worked out really nice. And then we had to build the networking and replication and uh, failover and scaling on top of rocks, basically. Now, did you end up using Raft for your consensus protocol? <sighs> Now, I, I wasn't really on the IronMQ team, and this kind of 
upgrade, but we are using something and I believe it is Raft. And nobody wants to implement the other ones. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I remember the first time I saw the Raft paper, I was like, 10 pages, that's it? No, this can't be right for a distributed consensus protocol. Yeah. yeah. The subtitle actually... of the paper, Consensus for Mortals. Right. Yeah, that's right. Uh, the title was something like that, wasn't it? All right. So uh, I guess let's let's talk about some interesting uh, Go projects. So Brian has this whole thing where he goes to sleep and he downloads uh, all the interesting Git, uh, Git, GitHub projects for Go. And then he just spews them out to me in the morning. <laughs> <laughs> it's how I get myself to sleep tonight, browsing the latest commits to Go projects. And, and I hope that he curates it first because I don't have that kind of time. <laughs> I do. I, I only share the interesting ones. The first one today, uh, I saw a couple months ago and it was just in its its beginnings, but it, it looks like it's getting pretty nice. There's a, an OAuth2 server written by Richard Knopp. It's called go-oauth2-server. And it looks like it's getting pretty solid in terms of its capabilities. So it's a, a standalone server. It's backed by etcd for configuration and i think postgres for uh, data storage and it gives you the full oauth2 flows for your apps and uh, generates keys the whole works so it, it looks like something that's well worth checking out links to that of course will be in the show notes it has wonderful documentation it does really Amazing. some of the best i've ever seen for an oauth server i agree for an oauth server <laughs> <laughs> You know, spe so speaking of um, Cockroach, again, that is probably one of the best documented projects I've ever seen, too. Oh, agreed. That, yeah. that one, beautiful, just so well documented. And, and the C++ code was pretty, too. I don't think I've ever seen C++ look like that. <laughs> Readable? <laughs> what, is, what is this weird language? Oh, wait, this is C++? <laughs> it's really C++? All right, the second project I stumbled across a couple of weeks ago, and again, it, it's maturing to the point where it's starting to look really interesting, and that's RQLite, which is the distributed SQLite. Yeah, I had uh, seen wait, wait, that uh, too. It, it, Adam's going to tell us at some point that that's not is, you say SQLite you're anymore. You're not pronouncing it's, it right. It's SQLite. SQLite. Right, well, whatever it is, RQLite is the Raft-enabled version of SQLite. And it allows you to have uh, a distributed SQLite database. Uh, and that's all built in Go. It's distributed, uh, pretty slick stuff. Uh, it, it looks like it would be really high performance. So I'm, I'm kind of itching to test that one out. I might have to build a little cluster and What's see what I could do. What's the interface for that? Is that they, they turned it into HTTP rather than um, interacting with like an actual uh, SQLite um, adapter? Both, actually. You can query directly against the uh, SQLite DB on disk. And you, I think you're required to do all of your uh, data changes over the HTTP API, which actually just sends uh, DDL. So the, the API is, is a really tiny JSON wrapper for DDL. So the downside is just that you can't just use a normal SQLite adapter. You, you kind of have to develop you know, uh, HTTP client to store yeah. your data, but still, I mean, it, it's really interesting though, because things like raft and etcd and console have like really enabled people to build their own distributed systems much more easily. And just, you know, kind of to Travis's point too, you know, they've, they've built on top of rocks DB for the persistence layer and leveraged raft, you know, for doing their own distributed census internally. So you can kind of make up your own databases. I mean, not that you'd suggest well, everybody do that, but Facebook did it with MongoDB. They took um, Mongo and and stuffed rocks underneath it and have a, an extremely fast and fault tolerant and high performant uh, database system. I think is it Charity Majors that that heads that up. I can't remember, but anyway, it's That's it's pretty. everybody's doing it, and it's cool. You know, tried that uh, rocks backend for Mongo. I no. have not. No, it, it was on my list, and yeah, it, it's still there. I wonder if it's dead <laughs> though. Now that Parse is dead, that's a good question. What was the other one that I, I got hooked on, Brian? Uh, the Cassandra one that was rewritten in C plus uh, plus. What was the name of that? Oh, I can't remember now. 
I'll, I'll think of it, you know, right after we end the show. But anyway, Travis, if you haven't seen it, it's basically um, wire compatible with Cassandra, but written in C++ instead of Java. Oh, wow. Yeah, that I, was I really cool. Databases are Eric's crack. You <laughs> can't put it down. It's code generation for Brian and databases for Eric. <laughs> <laughs> you should see the list of databases Brian and I have looked at over the years. I mean, different time series databases databases that are written on the gpu just all kinds of stuff i still want to see one of those work there's so many hype databases right now for gpu but i haven't seen anybody release one that actually does anything uh what was I'm the white gpu db gpu db and, and there was another one there's another one but they're at least from what i can tell they both seem to be pretty close to vaporware and until somebody hears this episode and does something really cool with it. Yeah, I'm waiting. My, Please my do, email address right? is bkettleson at gmail.com. Send me an email <laughs> and prove to me that somebody's doing something with GPU databases. I don't believe it until I see it. Uh, <laughs> all right. So what else do we have? So the last interesting Go project is an old one, but one that I just started using recently and found it to be about as awesome as a utility can be. And that's SyncThing. So their website is SyncThing.net. And if you're familiar with, you know, any one of the peer-to-peer uh, -peer syncing tools like BitTorrent Sync, it's the same sort of thing, but it's, it's an open protocol. It's written in Go. And uh, it's from a utility perspective, it's great to just, you know, sync your documents folder between your Mac and your Linux machine or, or your laptop and your desktop. Uh, I tried it this last, I guess it's been two weeks now. I've been syncing my GoPath source directory between my Mac and my Linux box. And I have it set to uh, like a 20 second uh, sync repeat so that if, uh, if I make a, if I save a file on my Mac while I'm sitting downstairs uh, and give it 20 seconds, close the lid, I can come back upstairs onto the Linux box and keep editing that same file with the changes uh, just by opening them up. And it's, it's been liberating. It's pretty amazing. I didn't realize that, uh, A, the, the synchronization was quick enough to be able to enable that. And it had just never occurred to me before that I could synchronize my, my Go path at least the source directory of it, uh, and not have any repercussions. I, it hasn't bitten me in, in any way. It's been really cool. You get clone something into my GoPath, and next time I'm on my Linux machine, it's just there. It's really cool. Now that you're sounds using amazing. This, you're using this in place of, say, Dropbox? Well, it's, so it's not, it's not centralized storage. It's peer-to-peer -peer storage. So okay, each, okay. each computer runs its own daemon and they communicate with a centralized uh, distributed hash table sort of thing that that helps each of the computers locate each other but you have to have a, a a client authorization so nobody could just log in and and grab my source directory uh, you have to enable each of the different clients to talk to each other so there's there's a good amount of security involved in it and there is no no central storage like dropbox so it's not quite the same as Dropbox, although you could easily use it for the same, same capabilities if you had two machines. And it works and over the WAN? It does. It works anywhere. It, I don't know what technologies they're using, but I haven't run into any um, NAT piercing problems or anything like that. It just, it just works. I'm trying to think of uh, the alternative to alternative way to do this as far as writing codes, because I want to put a repo on Dropbox or something like that. But the alternative to this, the way you're doing this, would be to push to uh, the central repo all the time and then pull it on your, right. on your other machine. And uh, this is super handy. It really is. It's, it's slick. It, it's, it cut down the number of crazy branches I've had to push to drastically because if I'm not ready to commit something to a repository, as long as it's saved on my disk, it's synced to another computer and, and I'm good. So I'm, I'm really enjoying the workflow. I'm probably doing something I shouldn't be doing, but I don't care because it hasn't bitten me yet. And it's awesome. Syncthing.net. All right. So let's move on and uh, we'll rope Travis in here a little bit. Being he's on the show, we should probably talk to him a little bit, huh? Well, Travis, did, <laughs> did you have any interesting projects that you, you've seen recently that kind of piqued your interest, whether they're uh, Go-related or utilities? 
Yeah, I mean, uh, one that I've been looking at pretty closely is Caddy. C A D D Y. It's like a web server slash yeah, written by proxy with Let's Encrypt built in and things like that. Seems pretty cool. I haven't had a chance to really, really use it, but I'm very interested in it because, well, because we have a a, a want or a need to have a, some kind of proxy layer. So we're we're looking at that for sure. Yeah, I can tell you that the, all of the Gopher Academy and the Gopher Academy blog and Gopher Con websites are all served behind Caddy and have been since something like April of last year when it was in its earliest possible releases. And we absolutely love it. Couldn't be easier to use Caddy. Yeah, yeah Big, Brian huge, went all, huge thumbs up. Uh, Brian went all super beta on it, just like you guys did with Go. <laughs> He's like, it compiles. I'm deploying it. Yeah, that's nice. <laughs> yeah, we. Uh, the the only thing I I was kind of hoping it would be more uh, programmatic. I was trying to sort of be able to pull in all the internals and use it, you know, in a nice interface. But it, it seems like be. it's very it's more web server driven at this point where you need a you need the config file and whatnot. I was I was hoping to be able to add add it a whole bunch of stuff and take now. away things kind of dynamically. Uh, I know Matt has been working a lot on making it embeddable. I think it is now. Um, I know they've been abstracting out some of the components because um me uh Gibbon. Gibbon. His uh He's working on core DNS, which is like a DNS server that's taking a lot of um, concepts from Caddy that he really liked. So there's been some abstractions made to reuse some of that logic. Yeah. So if you haven't looked at it recently, you might want to take a, a look at it again and check it out because I'm, I'm pretty positive it's embeddable now. Yeah, th- there was actually, I was actually talking to, it's Matt, right? Matt Holt? Matt, yeah. Yeah. And uh, the part, the pieces that I was looking for, like, proxy and backends and stuff like that wasn't uh wasn't programmatic yeah you had to basically generate a config file and then restart it kind of thing oh, but um, i uh i imagine it'll get there all you have to do is whisper it in matt's ear and in, in, in a day or two it's going to show up in caddy so cool well hopefully it does that was probably that was a couple of weeks ago i think maybe you guys can uh, whisper it too and it'll happen faster <laughs> um another one that you know, it doesn't, it's not too exciting, but I've been really liking is uh, Viper. It's yeah. basically like command line tools and pulling in environment variables and config files. Yeah, and you can uh, override kind of one with the other so that it yeah. defaults back to something sane. Yeah, yeah. So we've been using that all over the place now. It's kind of become a default. That's really cool. Have you tried the uh, remote configuration for Viper yet? I have not, no. I added that, I think, last year. I, I love Viper. I think yeah, it's really awesome. So we used um, the remote config as the baseline configuration. So, you know, things that every machine, every app needs to know comes from etcd. And then yeah. you can just layer on extra stuff on top of that. And it worked out really nicely. Oh, that's cool. Yeah. I wanted to mention yeah. that I have had never written any command line tool before I found out about Go and started learning Go. And I think it's just amazing. The coolest thing in having Cobra and Viper. Uh, if people, if you haven't tried it, you're going to get addicted to it. Yeah, I think all of those came out of um, Steve's bigger project, which is Hugo. Yes. So I think he abstracted those out of, of that because people had kind of similar needs. And yeah, I mean, I, I love some of that stuff like uh, Viper with uh, being able to do the sub commands and things like that. So mm-hmm. much easier. When you have some command line utility that just has just a crap ton of functionality, you have to hide away. It's nice to just be able to do the sub commands and Viper allows you to kind of really organize it nicely. Yeah, those those repos are at github.com slash SPF 13 slash Cobra slash Viper slash Hugo slash P flag. Uh, I, I, know I don't think there's anybody really well. as prolific as, as Steve out there. <laughs> no, that's good stuff too. And and it's funny because I've, I've talked to several projects that were written, writing command line apps, and they've started with uh, no command line enabling libraries, and then they move to something else, and everybody ends up on Cobra. 
because it's just the nicest interface for writing command line apps. So if you're going to write a Go command line app, skip all the craziness and just go straight to Cobra because that's what everybody else does. Yep. You get all these free opinions on this podcast. <laughs> the value <laughs> is gonna throw, crazy. I'm going to throw one more project that I, uh, I think is pretty, pretty good. It's the uh, Jin web framework mm-hmm. or API yeah. framework. I think it seems to me it's the best one for Go so far that I've found. This makes it gets rid of so much code, makes makes everything so much easier. Yeah, and keeps it readable. That's that's the yeah. trick. You can't you can't lose readability when you're writing those big web apps and, and Jin does a good job, I agree. Yeah, I've I think I've been through almost all of them at one point or another and I can't I can't decide. It's it's, it's just there's things I love about each and there's things I hate about each and I feel like I'm going to hate web frameworks forever. Well, you know, my, my uh, code generation uh, fetish means that I have to be a, a Goa fan. So it's, it's Goa for me and nothing else in terms of web apps. So I, I had to get that plug in there. And I have to be fair, as much as Brian tries to beat it into me, I have yet to play with Goa. <laughs> One day. Hey, I said the same thing. How long did it take me to convert you to uh, Vim? <laughs> Years. But now I've, I haven't looked back, so I think you need to trust me on Goa too. Well, one of these days, you know, when I when I have a ton of free time, right? <laughs> exactly. There you go, Travis. You need to try Goa, and then you let oh. us know. Okay, I'll check it out. You can be the objective third party. Come back and tell us what you think about code generation and what when it comes to API development. We'll we'll put you on the show and and you yeah, can and, tell us what you think. And for Travis and for anybody listening who's not already familiar with uh, Goa. Basically, it's a, Brian could probably describe this better, but it's, it's a DSL for kind of describing your API and then it generates the, the actual implementation. Yeah, which from my perspective, just describing your API, uh, the, the idea behind Go was that you had to spend, you had to invest that time describing your API well, and then it, it generated an API for you, which I thought was good. I, I really liked the whole idea of code generation and, and single source of truth. but the code that it generated was so beautifully idiomatic Go code. I was, I was more impressed by that than anything else. You know, usually when you end up with a code generated app, it looks like a code generated app. Yeah. And that's, that's, what, that's what I was going to say. I mean, uh, when you come from, uh, when you've been programming for a while and you use those old code generation tools, you kind of get burned and never try them again. I have a hard time trusting. I'll trust you. So, but I, like, just like you said about something else earlier, I have to see it to believe it. But the website is amazing. And I wanted to ask, does it also generate uh, documentation? It generates. So thank you, by the way, I did the website. And the code generation will create a Swagger JSON file for you so that you can use the, any of the Swagger tools to to provide API docs, which I think is really awesome. So you, you get both the, the Swagger schema and a JSON schema that you can use as the documentation for your API. It also generates a JavaScript client for your API and a CLI command line app for your API. So you can call your API from a command line too. Lots, lots of code generation there. Just, my, my model for 2016 <laughs> is generate all the things. Wow. All right. I think I'm going to have to, to play with that this weekend. <laughs> yeah. So you, you actually define the, it looks like you define the API in Go code. It is, it, it's Go code. But if you're familiar with, um, what's that testing framework that is? Um, Ginkgo. Uh, Ginkgo. Is it Ginkgo? Yeah. So there's a testing framework. And I think that was the inspiration for the Go DSL. So it's, it's a DSL. It looks like a DSL. It really truly is Go code, but it uses a lot of anonymous functions to make it look like a DSL. And so that's what you write. You write this, this DSL that describes your API, you describe your endpoints, you describe the messages that are, that are going back and forth. And once Mm -hmm. you've done that, you, you run your code generator and it, it whips out a giant application for you. It's really nice. How about tests? Does it generate tests as well? I think, um, I haven't seen it yet, but I think just yesterday or the day before somebody merged in something that, that generates tests as well. Wow. Yeah, and so it's, it's interesting because, you know, you kind of pointed out, you know, the, the number of anonymous functions that it uses to do this DSL. 
But if you look at any other language that's a DSL, that's basically what they do too, right? So people commonly do DSLs in Ruby, but what do they use for that? They use blocks, right? Yep. It's, it's all the same. And, and people get hung up, especially when they see Goa for the first time, when they look at that DSL, there's, you know, we use dot imports to make the DSL look prettier. Uh, you know, dot imports are, are the end of the world in Go, but it's the DSL. You know, the code that's generated doesn't use dot imports. It's very idiomatic, idiomatic and, and good looking Go. So don't let that, that DSL look hang you up too much. It's just a DSL. Yeah. And I mean, and that's just to generate your code, right? Like the code that gets generated is idiomatic Go. So correct. And now you've been working on uh, an extension to this for generating um, ORM uh, communication. That's, that's right. The, the, one of the first things I did after I saw Goa was say, well, if we can, if we can build an API, why can't we build the, the database layer too? So I played around with a couple different um, Go database access layers and finally settled on GORM for being the one that's, that's the least evil in terms of ORMs. And so I made a... Uh, How's that a, measured anyway? <laughs> it's measured in how much crazy stuff it does behind the scenes that you don't expect. And as far as GORM goes, it's, it's almost no crazy stuff. I mean, everybody, we, I think we've all on this show at least have, have all done active record in the past and been shocked by the 38 queries that happen when you make one select statement. Um, GORM doesn't do any of that. So it's, it's not, not too evil. That's good. So uh, I created this plugin for Goa called Gorma, which uh, allows you to use that same sort of declarative API DSL to uh, declare your models too, and then define the relationships between the models using active record style, you know, has many belongs to sort of things, and then declare the relationships between the API endpoints and your models. So it will generate your entire API and the data layer uh, with just a couple hours of, of thought into what it should look like. Oh, that's awesome. I'm, I'm definitely going to have to play with it. There's, there's a, a YouTube video, uh, my YouTube channel, which is either B Kettleson or Brian Kettleson. I can't remember which, but there's a YouTube video of me talking at the Tampa go meetup. It's about an hour and a half long. And I do a, a end to end demo of Goa and Gorma. And then I load test it at the end just to prove how awesome it is. So it's, right, it's pretty so slick. If, if I watch that video, does it count as playing with it? Yes. All right. All right. I'll give you that much. I'll at least watch the video this weekend. There you go. All right. So <laughs> before we run out of showtime here, let's, uh, let's <laughs> chat with Travis here a bit. Um, so Travis, I mean, so you guys were one of the first, at least that I remember, to publicly state that you were using Go. I mean, definitely long before many of... Uh, the, the big guys started waving their hands with the, you know, we are too. Um, and I, I think it was pre one. I mean, it might've even been before the go tool. You guys might've been launching with make files. Um, <laughs> so I'd really love to, to, to kind of talk battle scars and kind of what, what made you love the language so much to adopt it that early on. Sure. Um, so our decision process, the go tool did exist, I believe when we launched I, but it was pre 1.0. Um, but our decision process was, uh, well, basically we're hitting the wall on Ruby and, uh, and we needed to change. And I, I was a longtime Java programmer. So it was kind of, did I really want to go back to Java to get more performance and stuff or use something new or, or one of these Java derivatives like Scala was kind really of really like tweaking the JVM. What's that? I said, because you really like tweaking the JVM and you want to do yeah. it again. Love it. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and uh, so we, you know, looked at these things and Scala was kind of popular at the time too. And Clojure was kind of hip too. Um, but, you know, and this Go thing was there and we saw that Google was back and there's some really smart people behind it and we tried it. And I think the, the simplicity of the language and with, you know, almost same performance as Java, not quite, but, but close. So we, we, we liked that. We prototyped really quickly, uh, you know, a, a queue implementation basically, and tried to see what kind of performance we could push through it. And it, you know, it worked really well. So, um, we had some convincing to do of, you know, our team and our investors and stuff, cause you never want to pick the wrong technology. 
And, uh, you know, we, we just moved forward with it and turns out it was a really good decision, luckily. Yeah, I think it, it, it's crazy. I mean, cause I, I love the language and Brian and I bought into it pretty early on too, but I don't, I don't know whether we made any major, um, production releases pre one. Do you think Brian? I put, um, R60 or R61 in production. That was definitely make file days. But I mean, it wasn't like the core of the application. No, no, it, it was a, it was a, one of the pieces of the constellation out on the, out on the peripheral. Right. So yeah, I mean, building, building an entire company betting on that this was going to explode is really crazy to think about. Um, and, and I mean, I'm glad all of us, you know, stuck with it and I mean, look yeah. at where Go is today, but I mean, you, you don't look at the growth pattern. Like now you can kind of look at the growth pattern and more watch, see the adoption happening. And you can pitch that to the investor and be like, look at this. This is only going to continue to get better, right? But then yeah. you, you had nothing. You're like, there's some really pe smart people working on it. But there's also a lot of projects a lot of smart people are working on that, that don't really take off. I mean, especially yeah. languages. Languages, I don't even know how you predict which one's going to take off. Because there's other languages I've looked at that are just as, you know, interesting in different ways to me. And they, they don't have the growth that Go does. Yeah. It's just astonishing. There's, you know, I always ponder this. I always wonder, you know, there was those early adopters like us and you guys. And I, you know, I'm not saying we did this, but I think us doing that and kind of saying how well it worked in production and how, you know, it totally dominated our previous version that was written in Ruby. You know, I think those kind of things probably pique people's interest even more, right? So you have this great team building the language. And then you have some companies that are actually using it in production, you know, so it's kind of a, you know, a self-fulfilling thing. I don't know. I, I almost disagree just because in the early days for every iron IO blog post about how we, you guys moved from, you know, slow things on lots of servers to really fast things on fewer servers. There were just as many, we tried go, it ate our lunch and destroyed the entire company blog posts. You know, it seemed, especially in the first couple of years of go that there was far more negative press about people trying go than there was positive press. Maybe that was just, you know, my, my perception of things, but I think collectively though, I mean, the, the passion that existed in the community as it stood was so great though, that if you dipped your toes in, you kind of got swallowed, right? Like you, you just got pulled into it. And I think that was some of the stuff that, you know, we've talked about this before too, that I think the reason that we loved it so much is the language itself was so simple. Um, yep. You know, you, you could reason about the code and then of course concurrency and performance and things like that. So that was enough to, to pique your interest. And then you kind of got into the uh, Golang nuts and you started interacting with all these people who just were, were so passionate and just, so eager to help anybody who also shared this interest in the language they loved. And I think it kind of pulled all of us in. Yeah. And I'm, I think that's why all of us, all of us here are kind of trying to do things back to, for the community that right. pulled us in, right? Like you guys run in one of the largest go meetups. Yeah. Rob Pikes uh, spoke at one of our early meetups at Heroku. It's probably like three or four years ago. And he said, surprisingly that most of the people that were using go were from ruby and python and javascript not they, they were expecting people to kind of switch from c and c plus plus to make their lives easier but it turns out it was a lot of you know these scripting languages where people wanted more per performance but they had this you know compiled systems language that wrote sort of like those scripting languages yeah i don't think they predicted that at all and I mean, it, it definitely pulled a lot of people in, um, people who wanted to do systems programming that felt like maybe it was unapproachable because, you know, they've seen C, they've seen C++, they've seen maybe some assembly and it just seemed, you know, beyond their reach. And then there were people who, you know, used uh, the scripting languages because it just, it was felt more productive and they didn't want to do things in C and C++. And now they had something that they could get the performance without the, um, kind of the productivity losses of doing things in C and C++. Yeah. And that may be unfair to say, but for the 
productivity losses. I'm sure there's people who are plenty productive with those languages. Well, there's, I think there's a cognitive load, a cognitive overhead when you're working in, in something as, as deep as C++. You know, when you've got templates and, and all of that code, it's, it's difficult to be really productive. Now, on the other hand, if you're doing the same thing over and over, you reuse a lot of your code. So sure, you can be uh, very productive that way. I feel like that would go as well. Just the syntax is so concise and, and small. I feel like uh, I'm reusing the, the I'm using the same thing over and over again. Which at some point I'm just thinking about the problem in front ahead of me, as opposed to, oh, how do I do this or or how do I do that? Um, it's it's completely different. Well, yeah, it goes a small language. How many keywords? Sixty-seven keywords, something like that. And, Isn't it and two, two of them are crazy keywords like whereas that we put in just for fun. <laughs> just for fun. <laughs> I really like that you don't need uh, code generation. Coming from Java, you know, you, you had to use a big IDE that could do a bunch of refactoring and generate all your getters and setters and all this code for you. Whereas Go, you don't really need any of that stuff. Yeah, simple text editor makes, makes your life easy in Go. Yeah. I agree. You can That's, keep that whole code model in your head. It's crazy because Vim, uh, I live by Vim and Java is the only language I will not try to do. In Vim. Yeah. <laughs> it's the only one. I'm like, all right, all right. I'll just install the IDE. Yep. It just feels so, that painful. So Travis, what kind of, what kind of pain points did you hit uh, early on with Go? Did you run into um, big garbage collection pauses? Did you, did you see anything crazy like that? that that you ended up, um, you know, having to diagnose early or, or was it relatively painless for you? Um, you know, this was a, a while back, but I think the benefits we gained were so significant that we probably overlooked a lot of the drawbacks. But uh, yeah, I, I mean, I think probably it was mostly the amount of libraries and whatnot that were available at that time, which there weren't that many. And there weren't that many that were well tested and things like that, yeah. you know, like database drivers and stuff like that. It was, it was what, uh, maybe a week or so ago, Brian and I were reminiscing on that too. I don't, I don't, I mean, not in a good way, but <laughs> thinking back on how, and look, comparing to today, how much easier people have it because you had to write libraries for everything back yeah. then. When and, I was a kid, <laughs> we didn't have DB SQL. Yeah. Just, just and remember that, but... <laughs> <laughs> the first Go app we put into production, DB SQL didn't exist. Yeah. Yeah. Crazy. And, yeah. And I mean, some of the stuff too, I mean, like we constantly see stuff now. One of the ones I saw earlier today was OCR written in Go. It just, oh, you yeah. can find, you can find projects for everything now. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And That's nice. Time. And really high quality that the libraries that come out of the Go community seem they're just, a lot of them are really exceptional, you know? Yeah, they're strong. I agree. Go seems to attract really bright people that, that have um, solid engineering minds. Right. And then I think, me. I think Go also benefits from the wave of, like, test-driven development out the, out the Ruby developers went through. And probably, that's what I'm familiar with. But before I, I found Ruby, I wasn't, I wasn't doing that i didn't even really understand how to do it and now these these developers are working with go and they bring in all of that those good practices into the community and into their development so it's very nice it, just as they say go is a modern language and it's benefiting from past experiences in a big way yeah that's a good point I, i'd like i'd add to that too that it seems like most Go libraries, people are testing for performance too. Yeah. And if they so, aren't, somebody else is. There's there's <laughs> somebody who just crawls. Brian downloads the cool project. Somebody else goes and finds the cool projects and submits uh PRs to reduce stuff. allocations. <laughs> yeah, right. it's amazing. Which which in Ruby you never saw. Like they they'd be well tested, but the performance, I yeah, don't nobody, think it was even looked at. Nobody cared. Yeah. Yeah, maybe it was just like the why bother mentality or I, I don't know. I mean, there's some I, I've 
I'm a little disconnected from that world now, but it seems like a lot of um, Ruby itself and a lot of the Rails libraries, people have been uh, going on these these crazy uh, endeavors to reduce allocations and things like that there too. So maybe, maybe it's a trend that's happening everywhere. I don't know. It's, it definitely seems more prevalent in Go. Yeah. yeah it's, I, I think I, it's, it's part of the Go mindset. Yeah. Yeah, I was just going to say that. I think people choose Go because, well, a lot of it's because of performance. So I think the libraries have to kind of follow suit. Yeah, that's true, too. If, if you're going to choose it for performance, you might want to actually pay attention to the fact of whether or not you're, you're doing it in a performant manner. Yeah. That, that reminds me of my, my first attempt to, to uh, make a, an addition to the Go language to fix a bug in, in Go proper. I, I think it was in encoding somewhere, like maybe base64 encoding. And I solved the problem, fixed the bug, wrote a test, all of that. And uh, I submitted the, the CL and I got back a comment immediately. Uh, this absolutely solves the problem. I need you to refactor it to reduce, uh, to, to get rid of the three allocations you added. And I stared at my email for a good five or 10 minutes, wondering what I did to add allocations and how in the world I was going to get rid of them because I didn't know. I came from Ruby. I didn't care about allocations. I still honestly don't care about allocations generally, but I didn't know what to do. I grabbed Eric. Eric, what do I do? <laughs> it's, it's funny though, because like I look at code and I'll see some of the allocations that are obvious, but other people, I, they just totally outshine you. They look at something really quick and they're like, there's five allocations there. You're like, what? How, how do you know that? Just by looking at it for a second. I have to go through and count. Yep, that would be an allocation and that one would be one, you know. But, you know, yeah. I, I think on the core team, it's, uh, it's almost like a game in, inside the team. I, I, I remember uh, Blake Mizrani. He's, I, I don't think he's on the core team, but he's very close with, uh, you know, Brad Fitzpatrick and those guys. And I think they almost have competitions. I, I think he wrote a, a log parser, like to parse log bump. And his whole goal is to have like zero allocations or something like that. And he did it. So now there's this log parser that doesn't allocate anything while it's parsing logs. That's awesome. I'm going to have to end this call and go look up how allocations are done and go how to recognize them and how to solve them. Um, I don't so, know what you guys are talking about. Uh, so actually, um, uh, there was a talk by, uh, I'm pronouncing his name right, Bjorn Rabinstein, uh recently from the Prometheus team. Um, he did a talk, uh, we'll link in the show notes. And I believe some of that he walks through the allocations and, you know, you can actually see the change. Um, so that might be a good, um, a look at it. And I think there's another awesome. one too, and I'll look it up for you and we'll put it in the show notes when I find it. I think there was another one that I'd seen a while back too, where somebody was walking through, um, looking at code and determining whether something was going to be uh, stack allocated or heap allocated and things like that. So yeah, you we'll know, maybe, find that and link to it. We talked a little bit earlier about the static analysis tools. Maybe there's an opportunity for a really simple static analysis tool that helps you understand the allocations that are being made. I mean, I know you can use uh, the benchmark tools that are built in to show you allocations, but uh, a nice SSA tool that's, you know, Brian friendly would be pretty awesome to show you know what allocations are being made and maybe suggest changes to reduce those uh, well some of them get hard too because you know if they could suggest the change you could make the change so there's there's two tools that are really good for it one is just using the standard um benchmark and test stuff where you can do the pprof and you can you can look at it um in the pprof tool or you can visualize it and those are great tools for looking for allocations um, but the other thing is, is there's, uh, go command line flags for the go compiler itself, where you can pass it in and it will tell you every time that a pointer escapes and it needs to be allocated on the heap too. So that's also an interesting thing to run on your code during the compile, the compilation so that you can see whether or not maybe something that you thought, uh, didn't. And, and it's interesting just because of the way it's hard to talk about over, you know, a call because you can't, I can't like give you code examples, but um, I'll find uh, some videos and stuff and we can link them in the show notes and I can send them out. But 
it's not as as complex as you you think. There's a, a couple of areas where you know they're, they're obvious, and then the harder part is determining libraries that you call that end up allocating for you, and then accidentally you know passing a pointer that ends up um, escaping the heap or escaping, um, and then having to be allocated on the heap, and you may not have noticed it. But yeah, yeah, I can see that. But like you said, I mean, most of the time, it, it, for most people, it doesn't matter. When you're trying to hit the scale, how many requests a second did you say you were, you guys were shooting for, Travis? A million. Yeah. See, when you want to hit scales like that, then allocations matter, right? Because a garbage collector comes into play taking up time. Allocations take up time. So when you want to hit scale like that or Prometheus, um, I think they were just talking about half a million uh, requests a second. You know, when you want to try and hit scale like that, then allocations become really, really crucial, but I don't think it's something for people to get caught up in really early on. You know, I think especially if you're new to the language, right? Because uh, uh, sitting there trying to trace down your allocations just kind of hinders the the fun of, you know, developing and being productive in this language and seeing how fast it runs on its own without you having to give much thought to it. I think that if you're starting out, you should not be concerned with that. Like save that for, for later, you know? I, th I think that it just become too daunting and it, it, it'd be harder to fall for the language, right? Because then at that point, you might as well be trying to learn C, right? So, um, so speaking of kind of taking on things new, one question I wanted to ask, uh, actually two. So one is hiring for you, Travis. How, how's that been? Is, I mean, we haven't really had to do too much hiring for Go people. So I don't know how big the pool is. Do you, do you guys struggle to find talent? Do you um, train talent? Yeah, that's a good question. It's it's easy to find people that want to work in Go. It's harder to find people that have actually worked in it, though. So mostly people we bring on are, you know, have played with it. and But, you know, they'll have good systems, engineering backgrounds or things like that. And, uh, you know, the knowledge you have transfers over pretty nicely. But we do get a lot of people that just, you know, are sick of whatever they're working on and are really excited about working on go and you know that's if you're working for us that's pretty much all you're working on so or you're you're referencing a ruby app that you're rewriting in go <laughs> <laughs> that those days are pretty much over but yeah i mean it's mostly new new stuff now but so have you, have you had any new hires that uh, came in and and picked up go and and just walked away saying go isn't for me this this isn't the language that I love. I'm I'm gonna go back to that other thing, whatever it is. No, that's never happened. Actually, never happened. There you go. That's that's so. anecdotal proof right there. That go is awesome. <laughs> yeah. it's, it's very good statistical evidence. Yes, yeah, a yeah. sample size of one. <laughs> yeah, you're gonna get a lot of that here. Uh, so the the other thing that you guys adopted uh, early on too is containers. You kind of spoke to Solomon announcing um, Docker at yep. the Go SF meetup. How soon after he announced Docker did you guys start kind of playing with it and releasing it? I forget the actual timeline, but I don't think it was much more than a year, probably after he first you know launched it. It was it was pretty funny when he launched it the the day he launched it. He pushed it to GitHub that day showed it to the people at GoSF and, you know, it was just kind of a side open source project, right? And it's amazing. I think it's three years in now and it's just, you know, taken over the world. It'd be yeah. amazing. Uh, yeah, so we started adopting it. We were already using LXC containers behind the scenes. You know, you'd, you'd upload your code to us for our Iron Worker product, which uh, I guess I'll explain what that is real quick. It's a uh, job processing as a service. So, um, you upload your code. We used to just, you just upload it in a tar or zip. And, and then after it's uploaded, you can queue up jobs, basically, you know, whether it's one job or a million jobs. And we deal with all the queuing and uh, infrastructure behind the scenes that, that run those jobs. So yeah, we, I'm, today you'd call it serverless. Um, in fact, we used to write articles about serverless before serverless was a cool thing. Yep. And uh, uh it's kind of we took care of all the infrastructure and all the hard part for you. And then and we ran all that code in LXC containers to keep it isolated and you know to maximize the 
memory and CPU or to limit the memory and CPU. And, and when Docker came out, it was just like all the stuff we were doing that was kind of hard and not many people were doing it. There wasn't much documentation. It was, you know, so Docker came out and made everything really easy. That's a beautiful um, abstraction over the top of doing uh, LXC. Yeah. And it allowed our customers to run and test their code on the exact same environment that it would be running on after they uploaded it. So that was our initial thing into Docker. We said, okay, well, now you have Docker, you can test your code before to fully test it. You could test it locally and hope that it worked the same after you uploaded it. But to really test it, you had to upload it, queue up a job and, and see the results of that job, make sure it worked okay, which is slow and cumbersome. And then all of a sudden, okay, well, now they can run in the exact same environment that they're going to be running on after it's uploaded. But you'd still upload your code. And then more recently, we've just said, we'll just run any image so you can create your own image from the ground up. Whereas before we had, you know, we had a bunch of different language images that we could say you could use as a base. And now you can just use whatever you want. We'll just run any image. So it's kind of been a progression. So how do you how do you support the any image plan? Are you piping in and out of standard in, standard out? Uh, what's what's the what's the stick behind that one? Uh, yeah. So I mean, like even before we we just execute your code inside a container, and yeah, we'd pull out the logs and store the logs and store the exit status and stuff. But inside your your code does whatever it wants. You know, it can connect to databases and APIs, do some processing, and then push the data back into your database or, or wherever you want it to go. So it's always been able to kind of do whatever it wanted. And, you know, we collect all the logs and stats and things around that. So it's not much different other than now you have full control over that image, which, which makes it pretty nice. You're not stuck to our, you know, our environment, whatever we installed on that operating system is the only things you could use. Now you can go install your version of image magic or, you know, anything that you need into it. That's nice. Yeah. Now you said you didn't have any real battle wounds from uh, Go adoption early. How about containers? <laughs> That's a different story. We had a lot of problems with Docker. There was a when Docker first came out. There was a lot of bugs. Um, like uh, the Docker daemon would lock up, for instance, and basically, it would. In fact, it didn't just lock up; it would lock up the entire machine. Like you couldn't even SSH into it. <laughs> so, so there was some pretty bad ones, but it wasn't. It didn't happen all the time. It was just kind of these things would happen randomly. So, you know, our solution to some of these things in the early days was uh, just uh, restart servers and or kill and launch new servers like every day, basically. Like the, always the, flush out these servers. In the uh, late was, 90s, was, that was my approach to administering SQL Server. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> just reboot it. Uh, well, hey, it works. You know, it clears out all the cruft that's been building up. That, they also had memory leaks and things like that that, that also fixed the problem because as long as you restarted the server before the memory ran out. So there was some issues. It's a lot better nowadays, though. It yeah, really is. Yeah, doc, running Docker in production is is one of the nicest things about 2016. I can tell you that. Yeah. Especially with tools like Kubernetes and Rancher and Deus, and, you know, all of these, all of these really nice orchestration tools that make it so easy to manage Docker. It's. I think Docker and the containers are going to take over the computing world for sure i'm pretty bullish on it i agree too so what's your prediction there you, you, you like to make a lot of predictions for uh go what's your prediction for for docker and containerization like where it's gonna go yeah do you think we'll, we'll ever truly get rid of vms and it'll be all all containers all the time or just they'll have the primary market share i think it should be all containers all the time i, I love rancher core os's philosophies you know, just everything in a container. The beauty of it is, you know, you, you fire up a new server, all you need to do is have Docker on it, right? Yeah, and I mean, I love CoreOS's approach to the kind of, like, you should write crashable software, right? Like, you, you shouldn't have to plan the um, server restart, right? Right. You know, like, at first, that seemed really odd to me, you know, like, oh, man, like, at any point, it could update and restart. That seems crazy. And I guess there are some cases where you would never want that to happen, right? But, you know, for, for most people's use cases, it, it should, your system should be able to tolerate that. If, if one node going down can affect your entire production system, then, you know, you've got much bigger issues. Mm -hmm. 
we even use it in development a lot now too. You know, it's, you clone a repo and without installing any tooling or anything like that, you can sort of start using it right away and get into it. Yeah, it has made the development workflow. You know, we talked about CockroachDB earlier. CockroachDB had, I don't know if they still do, but last year when, when we were playing with our fork of it, it had some pretty serious uh, dependencies that had to be installed in order to build it. Uh, you know, making that whole thing Dockerized, you know, Docker pull cockroach and, and run it and you're done. You know, the development pain uh, has gone down drastically. You know, I haven't had a database installed on any of my development workstations ever since Docker existed. You know, once, once Docker came out, that was the last time I installed Postgres or MySQL. Forget it. There's just no need to have those sorts of um, peripheral utility applications running on a development workstation anymore. They're yeah. all, all Docker containers now. Docker Compose Up. Pretty amazing. On the, on the off side, too, it's pretty amazing. We've, We've kind of adopted Docker for all of our deployment and whatnot too, not just for our running people's code. But I mean, it's it's everything's so much easier if you base everything around that one thing. You don't have to say, okay, well, these servers need this stuff installed, and these servers are running Go, these servers are running Ruby, these servers are running Java. You know, it's just all the servers need is Docker, and you can do all your ops and all your deployments and stuff through that kind of one unit you know all right it looks like we're about out of time i think we actually went over a little bit um but before we go uh we have a history of doing kind of like a free software friday shout out where all of us will kind of just give thanks and praise to some open source project that is currently or has in the past made our life easier um so we'll quickly go around the room and uh the virtual room and uh everybody can kind of uh mention a project. Uh, Brian, you want to kick things off? Sure. So last week, I think I mentioned that I've, I've decided my, my New Year's resolution this year. It's, it's a couple months late, but my New Year's resolution was to, to start learning front-end development. I've been doing back-end forever and completely left behind by the front-end scene. So I started learning uh, Gopher.js, which I think is just amazing. The ability to run uh, Go that's transpiled down to JavaScript on the front-end. Uh, and recently I found uh, Polymer Bindings for Gopher.js written by Luna Duclo. And that's at Palmstone game, or github.com slash palmstonegames slash Polymer. And if you want to write in a pretty material design front end using Gopher.js, then the Go Polymer Bindings are the way to do it. It may, makes it easy enough for even me to be moderately successful. And Carlicia? I like to, every once in a while, uh, acquire new tools to look at my codes. I like to know what's going on under the hood, uh, things that I would ne wouldn't necessarily catch just looking at it. And I found this tool called GoCycle. It's a, it measures the, the, measures the cyclomatic complexity of your codes. And it's a simple command line tool. You just run on it. It's got, it has, has a few flags. And it will let you know how many cyclomatic complexities, uh, specific lines of specific blocks of code, um, specific blocks of your code has, and it points you to the line number and the, the file name. And I thought it was pretty cool. Yeah, so that's actually really interesting. Um, I have not seen anything like that in Go yet. And it, cyclomatic complexity measurement is actually really common in the Java world. Um, I mean, I, almost all CI environments I, I've ever worked in in Java used it. So that's really cool. I want to I check that out. I don't know whether I've ever seen any Go code that has high um, branch rates and stuff. That'd be really interesting to run it on some like big Go projects and, and see. So we have, it, we have it built into the uh, CI routine in Goa. So we will fail if our cyclomatic complexity is higher than 20 on any function. Wow. Very cool. That's awesome. And Travis, we're kind of blindsiding you here, but do you have a project you'd like to give a shout out to? Um, maybe the one, probably the ones I mentioned earlier. That's true. Uh, we, we did give shout outs a lot to projects. Yeah. That <laughs> That's good though. And can't forget Docker, I suppose, after talking right. about containers. 
And Docker's an easy one. Yeah. Uh, so for me, I, I guess recently, uh, just be uh, FS Notify, um, which Nathan Youngman has kind of taken over um, that and adapted the API to this spec. Um, the Go team kind of suggested. And for anybody who's unfamiliar with it, it's basically for monitoring uh, file system changes on files. So with that being said, all of these projects and all of the ones we mentioned earlier, we will link to in the show notes uh, and give everybody new stuff to play with. Um, I, I kind of I, I want to thank everybody for coming on the call. I think we've had some fun conversations. Uh, definitely thank you, Travis, for coming on the call with us. No problem. It's, a, it's good to be here. There's rumor that you guys are doing some kind of major announcement in the near future, and maybe we can get you to come back on and talk about that. Would love to. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, if if you're not already subscribed, go to gotime.fm and you can subscribe to the podcast and the newsletter. And we are also at Goland or Gotime FM on Twitter. And I guess uh, I guess uh, what am I, am I missing here? Uh, GitHub. Uh, if you want to make suggestions for people to come on the show or topics, uh, github.com slash gotimefm slash ping. And with that said, let's uh, call it an episode and uh, I'll catch two of the three of you next week. Hey, Travis, on, on behalf of everybody, thanks so, so much for all you do in the Go community. Uh, we, we truly appreciate all Definitely. that you and IronIO do to... Uh, to facilitate Go and in San Francisco, especially. It's, it's really awesome. Good to hear. Thank you, guys. Absolutely. I second that. Thank you. All right, everybody. Goodbye. Goodbye. Cool, guys. That was, that was fun. <laughs>